Right, I've made a coffee. Let's pod. Let's go. Too good to be true crime number eight. Episode eight. Too good to be true crime. Here we are again for another episode. For your listening pleasure, everybody, can I just say before we start, I just want to say thank you for all the nice messages that we've been having sent into the pod. It's been a pleasure reading those. And, um, you know, it's nice to uh, be uh, slowly uh, growing our audience and and having people listen and write nice things to us. And thanks for all the likes and the subscribes and the Instagram comments, etc., etc. Austin over in New York. It's been wonderful, hasn't it, reading those? Yeah, it's great. It's been great. Thank you so much for everybody that's been supporting the pod. Even those, even just those little, you know, five star likes that you give us, keep them coming. If you were gonna give us a two star like, maybe you don't have to do that, but keep those five stars coming and 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 shoot us. We we have we have Q and A's that you can respond to on our Spotify. We are on YouTube. We are on Instagram. We are on TikTok. So and we of course are on Apple Podcasts. So any of those places where you can see any of our content and and give us a thumbs up, we would really appreciate it. I'm really glad that you said that because that meant that I didn't have to because you know how I loathe going, oh guys, like, subscribe, all that kind of stuff. But you said it so eloquently and so wonderfully and your dulcet American accent, mate. And of course, don't slag it off. Don't slag it off, mate. Just don't listen if you don't like it. Simple, innit? Simple, innit, mate? Mate, how's New York? You good? Yeah, New York's pretty good. We're, we're in my favorite season. I, this must be the third episode or something that I've said it, but fall in New York City, man. It's just a little bit of a magical time. Things are changing. We can we can shed the season the season past, and we can look forward to a holiday season, a frigid winter, brutal wind, tunneling through the the buildings in New York City. But we're not there yet. We're in the sweet spot. Yeah, and if the fall lasts long a long time, it means that you've got a shorter winter. And and you know what? Over here in the UK, the autumn, as we call it, you call it the fall. It's a lovely time because probably similar to you. So you've got a really, really hot and humid summer, right, over there in New York, and it gets brutal in the city. And then that fall time and where- And smelly. Smelly, and it just drops down. Just the temperatures drop, so you can still go out in a t-shirt and a pair of comfortable slacks, pound the pavements of Fifth Avenue, and actually enjoy the climate instead of going, it's either too hot, it's either too cold. Mate, it's nice. That's I hope right. to visit New York. I hope to come and see you again soon. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Let's go, buddy. Come on out. Let's do it. Let's get get ourselves down Manhattan, pound the streets, mate. Some live podcast episodes from Manhattan. That's a there's an idea right there. Yeah. Maybe you'll see that in a few seasons. Live from the epicenter, Manhattan, mate. Okay, so dude, um, I've got today. I've got a couple of too good to be true crimes. The first one I'm going to talk about is it's more of an honourable mention, and the reason why is because it's kind of from my neck of the woods. This is a too good to be true crime from about 10 miles up the road from where I lived. And it was my mother-in-law-to-be that told me about this story. She's been listening to the pod. Shout out to Annette. Hello, Annette. Hey, Annette. Hey, Annette. She was telling me about this. So we were having some lunch and she said, hey, how far is Whitney from you? And I said, that's not far. It's about 10 miles. And she told me about this story. So I did a bit of research on it and I, I, I could not believe what I read. And I give a big salute 
to Fiona Bateman, who is in, who is involved in this story. I'm going to get straight into it. So, about 10 miles up the road in a place called Whitney, as I said, this is what happened. So here we go. So, this Too Good To Be True crime is entitled Bike Thief Caught After Victim's Mum Holds Sit-In Protest Outside His House. All right? So, as I said, the woman involved in this story is called Fiona Bateman. And she sat outside the thief's house with a placard that said, Where's my bike, Dave? Right? Let's get into it. So, a prolific be uh, beak? A beak thief? A bike thief. A beak thief. A prolific bike thief was caught after a victim's mum tracked him down and picketed outside his house with a placard saying, Where's my bike, Dave? So, David Seeger, 49, stole eight bicycles in a summer long spree last year which sparked Fiona ba yeah which sparked Fiona Bateman's sit-in protest now I have to say I thought the days of bikes being nicked and cars being nicked as gone because you don't really hear about it that much anymore because I'm just thinking like especially with cars they're so computerized you can barely get into them and they don't work and I just thought with push bikes I had a nice bike here in the city and I parked it outside of my building for one evening uh, because I didn't want to bring it up into my apartment like I usually do, yeah. and I, I heard something in the night, but it wasn't it wasn't loud enough for me to wake up. Unfortunately, went out the next morning. Someone had tried to steal my bike and tried to take the light. I had a headlight on it. They tried yeah. to take that too. They failed at it because there was a production shooting on the bridge right outside, and one of the one of the PAs or something came out and and said, you know, hey, that's not your bike and stuff. So I go out the next morning. And and the same PA came up to me and was like, "Hey, just so you know, like someone tried to take it last night." And really, yeah, oh, so yeah. there was an eyewitness. Someone showing, "Hey, there, buddy, that's not yours, man." Yeah, there was a good Samaritan. So it, I, my bike, my bike was damaged, but I was still able to get some good use out of it for a while. I had a bike nicked when I was younger. So when I was about fourteen, I'd saved up. It was a Rally Amazon. And it had these gears that were like underneath. There was, it was quite state of the art for the time. They had gears that were underneath the handlebars. And I'd saved up. And I think it cost, at the time, now bearing in mind this was in the 90s, early 90s, I think it cost like 200 pounds at the time. So that's a lot for back then. I mean, it'd still be quite a lot now for a bike, I think. And so I'd saved up this money and I was working, uh, like brushing hair up in a, in a hairdressing salon. I had a paper round and, um, I had a Sunday paper round as well. So I was working a lot, only earning, my, my paper round was earning me seven pounds a week. Seven pounds a week, Austin. Imagine 14? that. I was, yeah, I was 14, 13, 14 years old. And then I was earning, yeah. I was working at Biggles Hair Studio, which was a hair studio in a place called Kidlington, where I come from. And I was earning 12 pounds a day on a Saturday, working from nine till six. I can't, when I look back and I think, God, that's what I was earning. I'm nine thinking to that six. Was, yeah, that's a long day for 12 quid. Anyway, I was saving I was saving the money. I saved for so long. Eventually got enough money. I, I think, if I remember rightly, that my mum was like, right, if you save this amount, I'll add the next to it. Which is good morals and good values, you know, because that makes you go, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig in and I'm going to save some money and then I'll get help from my mum to sort of pay for the rest. So she did well. Big up to mum for that one. Um, so I bought this Rally Amazon and a friend of mine had the same, exactly the same bike and I had it for about three days. And it was <laughs> lunchtime at school and we rode our bikes to the Forum Youth Centre 
So we, we drove to the Forum Youth Centre, rode our bikes there, and we parked the bikes outside the Youth Centre. It was behind like a, like, a, like a wooden fence. When in the Forum Youth Centre, it was only our lunch break at school. We must have been in there no more than 15 minutes. Came out, both bikes, gone. No, the, the two identical bikes? The two identical bikes were gone. Do you know oh. what? They were, but they were locked up. <laughs> the only thing was they were locked to each other. They weren't locked to anything stable on the ground. <laughs> so someone, someone came by and just like saw the bikes, tried to get them, didn't work. And then they were like, oh, I just need to get a buddy. Yeah, well, either that or there was a van or something, and they literally sure. just picked them up, throw them in the car or the van, and they disappeared. And then I never, ever had that bike back again. Then my nan, bless her, God rest her soul, she's not with us anymore. My nan then said, right, I'll, I'll get you another bike. But I had to get a second-hand bike, which I still had a bike, but it was a rally montage, and it was, it was lime green. And i tell you what, I loved that bike just because it was my nan that bought it for me. And she said, and she saw me. I cried when my bike got nicked. I cried, but I cried for the for the pure and simple reason, for no other reasons that I knew when I told my mum that I'd had my bike nicked, she was going to absolutely bollock me. <laughs> That's why I cried because <laughs> yeah. I was frightened. Yes, you're going to get in trouble. <laughs> right. So Fiona Bateman was left fuming when she saw Sega pinch her son's mountain bike from their carport CCTV. Right, so actually it's on the neighbor's CCTV. So you know those kind of like uh, doorbells now that have like a camera in them. There was uh, some CCTV and it was seen that this guy had nicked her son's bike. So Seager of Whitney, Oxfordshire, was repeatedly identified by social media users. But Miss Bateman said, although she reported it to the police, not much was happening. So my mother-in-law-to-be said to me that what had happened is that she'd gone to the police and she said, this guy's nicked my bike and they were like, oh, well, it's not because it's not worth that much. There's not really a lot we can do about it. So the police actually basically have put like a threshold on how important the crime is and have deemed it not important enough to investigate. And I'm like, well, how can that be right? Because that means to say that any crime that is deemed actually not very severe, people can actually get away with that. I don't think that's a good... That's not a good advert, is it? Because people are going to start doing oh, what they want, terrible. especially in these times of, you know, impending austerity. That means that people are going to kind of nick more stuff than they can. People are just going to take the law into their own hands then, aren't they? Yeah, they are, mate. So they're, they're, what they're going to do, um, what she did was then talk to friends of hers and other people in the town. And they were like, you had your bike nicked? Oh, yeah. That's, that's, that was Dave the bike thief. She said, what? They, yeah, that's Dave the bike thief. He does that a lot around here. So this guy, he was known. He was known to be a bike thief, even to the point where he had a nickname, not a particularly ingenious nickname. He was just called Dave the bike thief, right? So everyone knew who Dave the bike thief was. Right. So Fiona Bateman, she, sent, uh, she then uh, set out to track him down. So she found out where he lived and she sat outside Seeger's house for three days with a placard reading where's my bike dave so she's found out where this guy lives because he's a local he's a local man like he's not he's from out of town everyone knows who he is so she goes and she sits outside his house with this placard that says where's my bike dave um she was cheered on by social media users wowed by the courageous mum's daring crime fighting mission 
the Spotted Whitney Facebook uh, team even dropped off hot chocolate and a bunch of flowers. And also people, what they were doing, if she needed like a toilet break, they go, I'll take your spot. So people would come and sit there and go, right, Fiona, go off, you know, go and have a whiz around the corner. I'll look after your spot for you. And then It was when, a local event. She... The whole town got involved. Mate, it, it picked up some serious traction right hot chocolate bunch of flowers all that kind of stuff and then then obviously it was all over social media so the police then had had to do something so but it says at oxford crown court on friday um september the 15th seager avoided jail so he was arrested and he went to court but he avoided jail instead he was given two years imprisonment suspended for two years with requirements to complete a drug rehabilitation scheme and get this. So not only did he have to attend uh, a, a drug rehabilitation scheme, he had to also attend a thinking skills program. A thinking skills program. I mean, what the fuck is that? What world do we live in where we have to now attend programs where they have to teach us how to think? It's ridiculous. So I did a bit of research about this about the thinking skills program and what it is <laughs> the, the thinking skills program is the highest volume accredited program de delivered in custody so once you're in custody you have to attend this um this particular tsp which is the thinking skills program the thinking skills program is designed to reduce general reoffending by supporting improvement in four ways developing thinking skills such as problem solving flexible thinking consequential thinking and critical reasoning so basically if dave gets presented with a bike after he's attended after he's attended this particular uh, program he's going to stand there and he's going to you know access you know the information that he's received in custody and he'll go right okay he's learned how to think and i didn't even think there was that many different ways to think mate I, you're either think right surely the one thing you need to think about is should I do this or shouldn't I? And a reasonable person goes, <laughs> no, the fuck I shouldn't. I shouldn't steal that bike, right? Seems like they're overthinking it. Yeah, he's <laughs> this is true. The thinking skills program. It just sounds like some think tank has sat, sat around at a meeting one day going, do you know what would be good? Oh, this would be amazing. A thinking skills program. And everyone else goes, oh, that's amazing. That'll get us some accreditation in the local community. So <laughs> he attended that but he avoided jail. And uh, following the sentencing, Fiona said, well, we had a bike stolen for, from him. Does that mean I should feel entitled to steal someone else's? Because what they, what Dave, the bike thief, had actually said in the court was, well, I needed to get from A to B. I'd had my bike stolen, so I just took someone else's. What the fuck? Like, it, he had, he definitely needs to attend that thinking skills program because his logic is, well, I had my bike stolen, so that means that I'm entitled to steal someone else's. It, it That actually defies logic, in my opinion. Also, wasn't he a serial bike stealer? Hey, yeah, he'd stolen. So like, it doesn't really help his case much if he did it many times. Yeah, that's true. It wasn't a case of one one of his bikes getting stolen. It was eight. He had, to, he had to do it out of necessity many, many, many times. Following the sentencing, that's what she said. And she said, it's frustrating that he just got a slap on the wrist. And she said, you know, where are the bikes? How about my son's new bike? It's, you know, she said, new new mountain bikes now are like four, five, six hundred quid uh, to replace it. Um, yeah, he stole it. He stole a bike. Now her son has to walk. 
Um, but she said, oh, that's that's OK. Just as Dave, just as long as Dave, the bike thief, doesn't feel aggrieved. Um, but he was interviewed by the police a number of times. And um, I mean, he was caught on CCTV multiple times stealing bikes. And it said that he used bolt cutters to slice his way th through the locks in order to get away with the bicycles ranging in value from a few hundred quid to an e-bike worth more than £2,000. One victim that was at the doctor's returned from an appointment to find his bicycle, which had been locked up outside the surgery, had vanished. Another bicycle was stolen outside a leisure centre. The court was told, yeah. And it said that Dave the bike thief had come across as being uninterested when he was interviewed by a pro probation officer um, for a pre-sentence report. So, I mean... yeah. Dave the bike thief, it feels like he's just got away with it, to be fair, because he just had a, uh, you know, like um, a suspended sentence. It's, oh he says, they, he also said, Dave the bike thief, that he's got mobility problems. So, um, yeah, he, he, he feels pretty okay about stealing other people's bikes. Um, <laughs> what year is this, Rich? When did this take place? Wait, this was this year, 20, oh 2023, se September this year. Um, oh and basically, goodness. the judge said, deliberately and brazenly you're stealing people's bikes just to get you from a to b um yeah he but dave did say apparently that he was a little bit embarrassed he should feel by the probation officer's words and the fact that he had stolen other people's property well i mean i don't know whether that's true or not but actually i've got a few charges i want to bring like um <laughs> against Dave so I wanted to tell Let's me lay it on him yeah so I've not gone for a guilty or a not guilty I've just got a, a sort of a few questions musings if you will Austin so this is what I wrote down from from investigating this case so do you think Dave the bike stealer should have had a more uh, severe sentence than just two years suspended so essentially he's got away with it so if he commits another crime within those two years he'll go to prison but if he doesn't he'll just live his life as normally do you think he should have had a more severe sentence. I think he should have had actual time in jail. Yeah. Maybe not two years, but like a solid six months to a year in jail. That's yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, that might be the that might be the thinking program that he that he needs. Although we did discuss in our in one of our other episodes, thanks to Warren, we're we're a little bit of, uh, more aware of the fact that prison is not necessarily the place to rehabilitate someone and get them to think differently. But either way, I think in this case, he should have gotten some jail time. This is true. All right. The second musing, Austin, should Dave have to provide a taxi service to all the people that now have to walk after seeing their bikes? So should he have to be on call for like her son or anyone else or the guy from the doctors and go and they, they need to get somewhere. He has to have a hotline to Dave. They go, hello, Dave, the bike thief. They go, yeah, Dave, listen, I'm stuck at the shops. I need you to take me home with my groceries. And he has to, by law, have to go and pick those people up and take them back to their house. Do you think he should have to do that? It's like the episode of Seinfeld with the rickshaw. I think I, he shouldn't even get to drive or ride the bike. He should have to be people's personal rickshaw. That's actually a good one, yeah. A rickshaw. He just has to turn up there with his kind of like, with his sound system blasting and his fairy yeah. lights in the back of it. Yeah, I understand. Third one. Should Dave have to provide um, a puncture repair service to the local community, much like a breakdown car service? So if someone's riding their bike in the local town and they get a puncture, 
They don't have to do anything. Again, hotline to Dave, he has to come with his puncher repair kit and literally repair that puncher for people. I'm just trying to think of things that would actually be some kind of imposition to Dave, because he kind of got away with it. This would be an imposition to him, because it could be like, I don't know, 11 o'clock at night. Someone's just got off the train from the big city, got home to Whitney, they get a puncher, they have to call Dave at 2 a.m., he has to come out with his puncher repair kit. That's a penalty that I think Dave should have to adhere to. What do you think? I would say Dave should get less. I would be willing to forego jail time if he had to fucking repair people's broken bikes and stuff. Hell yeah. It's essentially providing the community with a bit of community service, isn't it? That's what I think. I mean, big up to Fiona Bateman for because she kind of she started a movement there, didn't she? I wonder if they'll have a town tradition, a town tradition where everyone gets together and holds up the sign every year, you know, like the town fair or something like, like a that. Like a naked bike ride. Have you ever seen one of those? <laughs> You ever seen that? No, I've never seen one, no. Hey, I saw one once and it was, where was I? I think I was in Miami or somewhere and it was like na the naked bike ride and it's literally just like hundreds and hundreds of people in there all together just riding their bikes. I'm hoping that they've got seats because that would be particularly uncomfortable if they didn't. But yeah, literally just driving their bikes down the street. Of all the activities that you could do naked, I, I really don't think I would want to ride a bike naked. That sounds really uncomfortable. Just feel the wind in your pubes. It'd be amazing, I think. <laughs> so there we go that was a story of fiona bateman and dave the bike thief big up to fiona i didn't even think there was that many different ways to think seems like they're overthinking it hey there buddy that's not yours man that's fucked isn't it fucked not there yet. We're in the sweet spot. Do you know what would be good? Oh, this would be amazing. A thinking skills program and everyone else go, oh, that's amazing. So I will just say, if you've got a weak stomach, listeners, um, I want to give you a little warning of this because there is some information in this this too good to be true crime that might literally turn your stomach and make you want to throw up. So I'm just going to give you a little warning about that now. Oh, um, so this is the 19th century swill milk scandal that poisoned infants with whiskey. No. So it's quite an important one, this one. And I just thought this was quite relevant, actually, because at the moment there's quite a lot in the news over here in the UK and I'm sure in, in the US as well about, you know, the... Um, the lasting effects of highly processed food, additives, ingredients that are going to make us sick, the long-term effects of that, especially on, on kids and children sure. and stuff. And after doing the research of this, this is a story from the 1800s in Manhattan in New York. And I was thinking it, it was happening then, even then, and it's, it's, it's continued to happen now. And it's sort of only now that we're perhaps really even trying to take some serious like note of the effects that kind of highly processed and po possibly toxic ingredients that are being put into, um, into food. So, right, here we go. Let's get straight into it. So it says here, nearly 8,000 infants a year shrivel to death from unco un uncontrollable diarrhea as reported in the New York Times. Without the luxury of advanced medical diagnostics, doctors struggled to identify the culprit. Um, the public floated theories, nutritional and, nutritional and digestive diseases such as cholera information and marasmus, I think that is, to give, the, to give a name to the epidemic. But with little evidence, they ultimately gave a collective shrug. That is until 1858, when an enterprising journey, 
No, I'm going to start again. When an enterprising journalist named Frank Les Leslie unveiled the offender in a series of scathing exposés. And the offender was milk. So, swill milk. Swill milk, to be exact, the tainted result of miasmic dairy cows being fed leftover mash and swill from Manhattan and Brooklyn whiskey distilleries. It was the result of distillers looking to profit from their leftover grain. It was an ex especially lucrative era to be producing cow's milk. Americans at the time considered cow milk to be highly nutritious and an effective substitute for breast milk. Back then, economic and social pressures pushed women to wean their babies sooner. Okay, so in her book, Taming Manhattan, Environmental Battles in the City, Dr. Catherine McNeur writes that vendors sometimes sold swill milk for as little as six pence per quart. Uh, six cents, sorry, cents in, in um, America, not, not pence, that's in the UK, which especially appealed to low, lower class mothers who needed to wean early so they could return to work. But the poor weren't the only ones looking for a solution. Middle class women were often having numerous children, but also had to fulfill the obligations of politeness in middle class society, which required them to be available visit, visit to, which required them to be available for visiting and leading the household. In order to do those things, it was necessary that they not be breastfeeding all the time. Okay, other theories for why women were weaning earlier included corsets and women's health during that time, which tended to be poor. So, the New Yorkers gravitated towards pure country milk, an intentional misbranding advertised across the side of swill milk wagons and on swill, swill milk street corner vendors' signs. The fact that the chain between food consumer and producer had expanded during the city's rapid expansion in the early 1800s, that only exacerbated the problem. So essentially, the city was growing at a rate of knots and the you know the kind of the supply and demand they, they they couldn't keep up with it so they needed a way to produce this milk really quickly and get it into the city because of the demand so bringing milk into manhattan from the rural farms in orange and westchester counties opened up the potential for it to spoil within the confines uh, in a stifling rail car so obviously everything's by train at that point because there wasn't big lorries and stuff that were bringing stuff into the city so having pure milk that dairies in urban areas was not possible, um, but they wanted it to be because rural farms, it wasn't a feasible option because New York City didn't have an abundance of grazing pastures. You live there, it's just buildings, it's just concrete and there, there was literally no farmland whatsoever. They, they wanted it to be, you know, um, farmed quickly. Also, shipping was exorbitantly expensive. So, the deviously inventive distillers found a workaround by, attract, by attaching metal sheds to their facilities and piping in hot cereal byproduct as feed for their cows. They could produce milk in the city and make money off their waste. So the distilleries basically in the city, they basically created these huge metal containers put the cows in there and all the waste that was coming out of the distilleries they used it to feed the cows which is horrific 
and it said that swill-fed cows were said to produce between five and 25 times more milk than their grass-fed counterparts. Uh, perhaps because, and this, this is the times that theorized, that theorized this, the impurities of the animal's body passed off with the milk. It was only a diet solely consisting of swill that proved particularly damaging to the cows. So essentially they're using this for the cows, but they know these cows are only gonna last a certain amount of time, but they're gonna produce a hell of a lot of milk in the short time that they're going to live. So when introduced to the boiling liquid, the cows typically refused to eat for a few days until literally desperation drove them to consume the flop. So they're so hungry. So they're basically like, I'm so hungry, I'm gonna eat anything now. So then they basically ate the swill. A diet consisting exclusively of the swill made the cow sick. It led to ulcerated sores all over their bodies and made their tails fall off. I mean, the oh, poor no. animals, that is oh. absolutely horrendous. That's but they didn't filthy. care because at, at this point, it was literally just all about the money. Mate, has much tail changed? Tail as old as time. Mate, a tail as old as time is still all about the coin, right? Um, okay. Because of the resulting liquid, because the resulting liquid was thin and had an unnatural bluish tint, vendors stirred in additives such as chalk, flour, eggs, and plaster of Paris to achieve a slightly more agreeable colour and consistency. So basically, they put into this swill whatever they could to make it look white. I mean, plaster of Paris, what's that? That's when, when you break your arm, right? As they put you in, in plaster, that's what that is, plaster of Paris. I think so, yeah. It could be used for art or for, you know, for, for the home too, I think. Yeah. So essentially, they're feeding the cows all this, essentially, shit. Damn. And the cows are producing a hell of a lot of milk because of it. That is then getting fed into the city and given to humans, like predominantly children, which is terrible. Okay, by the late 1830s, the swill made up between 50 and 80% of all milk consumed in America's large northeastern city. So it's now spreading out from New York. All those huge northeastern cities, between 50 and 80% of all that milk was being consumed by them. Okay, so temperance reformer Robert Hartley attempted to draw attention to the scourge in the 1840s. He even published a report linking swill milk and infant mortality. But his findings provoked little action because as Menkel writes, Hartley's temperance intended to limit public appeal. Again, goes back to the money. So he's basically flagging up, this is not good for you. But essentially, it's cheap and people wanted to make money from it. People couldn't afford to buy anything more expensive, so they had to drink it. Um, so they basically distrusted Damn. him. Yeah, it's bad, isn't it? They dis distrusted him, discredited him because they believed him to have an anti-distillery uh, agenda. So they're basically saying, oh, you're basically trying to stop us from selling like our whiskeys and our bourbons, all that kind of stuff. You're against that. That's good for everyone. You're to against have a little... our booze. You're against our booze. Um, and so that meant that they basically kind of ousted him and his findings were never really heavily published or taken seriously. Holy um, shit. Liquor-loving New Yorkers found themselves sceptical of Hartley's motives. Other factors inhibited his warnings from gaining traction. Uh, 
Weatherly distillers had political pull with officials. So it goes back to the government again, money, 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 and largely enjoyed an absence of government regulation. So again, it wasn't it wasn't regulated, so they could do exactly what they wanted. Um, and because swill milk purveyors had sickly cows in windowless sh- slacks, uh, windowless shacks, they easily bamboozled the public through false labouring uh, labelling. So they couldn't. So this kind of product was being marketed in the city, but no one knew where it was coming from. No one could see these cows. You know, it's, I guess, similar. There's been a similar thing with, like, battery hens and stuff, isn't it? Like, all crammed into coops and stuff in the, in the more recent times. Mm. Um, everyone's like, oh, it's food. I can eat it. What I don't know doesn't hurt me. It was still happening even then, as you said, a tale as old as time. So children were dying of things like diphtheria and tuberculosis, and they didn't know why. They, they really didn't know oh. why. It's awful. So you don't have a public health system that can tell you why your kids are dying. So this was awful. Right. So Frank Leslie, this is it. When a hero comes along. Right. So Frank Leslie, he had an illustrated newspaper. It took, uh, he did some articles on swill milk in 1858. It managed to incite mass uproar, uproar thanks to its powerful images and sensationalism. A Times article documented the origins of Leslie's swill milk crusade. Okay, and it said, Uncompromisingly matters stood when Frank Leslie found, left at his door as milk, a disgusting dose of milk and pus, which fairly threw his illustrated newspaper into emetic convulsion (laughs) yeah so basically it was left on his door on his swill and exactly i can't believe that that was being delivered and people were like saying this is okay well obviously at this point some people were saying it isn't okay right bound to know the worst of the horrible story he analyzed the specimen and then dispatched his corpse of reporters and artists to the headquarters of the poison he has reproduced pictures that are true to life so shocking that the very word milk or the sight of the dainties into which it enters are an important component literally turn your stomach the whole town suffers nausea so basically he's got like artists and stuff so i'm presuming at that time there was not a lot of access to cameras and photographs and stuff so he would get like a lot of his artists to go to these places like where the milk's being produced and literally try and document it with artist impressions um and then literally publish those so people were going what the hell is this Probably not as, you know, it's probably not viewed upon as being as, you know, as the as the actual evidence of being pure because it's still an artist impression. It's not actually a photograph. So there were still set skeptics. So Leslie, who had previously contributed to illustrations to future mogul P.T. Barnum's Illustrated News. There you go, mate. There's your musical theatre highlight right there. So he'd um, (laughs) done some illustrations for P.T. Barnum. In 1855, he took out full-page ads in competing newspapers. There, he advertised his Swill Milk Exposé series with dramatic lines such as, Are you aware of what milk you're drinking? He published precise maps depicting the street corners where swill milk was sold. So it's basically now getting the public to go, go and have a look for yourself. Go and have a look at what you're eating, what you're drinking. Um, And he tasked his illustrators with infiltrating these locations. He posted some 18th century TikToks and got, got the word out. 
mate, that's right. He was, again, we use this word a lot on the podcast. He was industrious in getting his message uh, out there. And you know what? The world always needs people like Frank Leslie. You need, you know, a pioneer to kind of highlight these massive problems, um, which is what he did because he believed this should not be being sold to, to human beings and quite clearly shouldn't. And also, you know, the treatment of the cows as well is absolutely horrific. Right. Okay. This led to some of the artists being attacked by the furious milkmaids. So the people that were basically working there. Because I guess, you know, at the end of the day as well, there are people working in these distilleries in these sort of metal containers. They're earning a living. It's bad what they're doing. But they're, they're putting food and arguably milk on their own table as well, feeding their families. So there's a lot of variables at play here. So now it's attack of the milkmaids. Attack of the milkmaids, mate. You know, like when I, when I hear the word milkmaid, I just imagine like, you know, people like in long dresses with like the wood across their shoulders holding these milk. But I, I imagine it's people that actually are working in these dis distilleries. Probably, I'd imagine, in pretty squalid conditions. It sounds absolutely horrendous okay so angry mobs would congregate outside the dairy's doors and the common council was pressured to send a team of new york city aldermen out to the premises for ins inspection so then they had to do something now so they went out to these premises um but suspiciously they provided the distillery owners advance notice allowing them time to sufficiently clean up um the disgusting stables that's fucked. Isn't it fucked? Because they're going, right, yeah, don't worry, we're on this. We're going to send out some people to check this out, to make sure it's all safe. But then they, they'd send messages out to go, make sure you clean up and, and you clear up any problem before we come and have a look at it. Because then we can say, no, we've looked at it, it's absolutely fine. They must have been on the payroll as well. They must have been. Rich, when I worked in a restaurant, the, the, the drainage for the espresso machine just was a hose leading into a trash can which was certainly not up to code. Sanitary. And we had explicit orders that if the health inspector ever came in, you have to remove the hose from the trash can so they don't see that. It still happens to this day, man. Yeah. When I also <laughs> remember when I worked in a pub when I was about 18, when, you, like, when you're pouring the beer and the, the drip tray that catches the waste... Right, so what happens is, in the drip trays, it's probably the same in America, the drip trays count towards waste, and at the end of the, at the end of the shift, you then have to put it into a pint glass and see how many pints of waste, and then you have to note that down, because obviously... Oh, I never had to do that. Yeah, so then you note down, so say you have like two and a half pints of waste, obviously that's not getting sold, that goes against your waste, so it gets set against the price and the cost of the beer. We were told, if there's like, so in a drip tray, you could, it's almost a pint, in each drip tray, if you get an opportunity towards the end of the night when you've got a few drunk people in there, if they want a pint and you, no. can, and you can use it from the drip tray, use that because that means we're making more money and we're not actually setting aside too much waste. No. Mate, I'm sure. I'd... One pint. Yeah, you want a pint, mate? Yeah, and then just top it up on the tap just to get, make it a little bit, yeah, disgusting, right? That happened, mate, and I'm sure it still probably happens now. Okay, so after the hearings, and the inconclusive chemical analysis, the majority of the committee voted in favor of keeping swill milk. So all these kids are dying, all these people were getting district getting sick. They sent people out to say, uh, just check it out, see if it's safe. They come back saying, oh, inconclusive chemical analysis, we're keeping swill milk. What the fuck? Because they're making money from it, mate. They're making money, it's awful. 
human beings. That's what we do as a species. It doesn't really matter if people are suffering as long as our lavish lifestyle is like always nicely, you know, kind of being looked after. And I would say that it's been one of the biggest challenges of us as podcast hosts is stumbling into all this podcast money that's just been pouring into our bank accounts, you know, just just from the first few episodes. It's more than we can handle. Six figures because I started off doing this in my bedroom. Now I'm in the east. I mean, the east wing <laughs> of my mansion doing this in my f- <laughs> fully air conditioned recording studio. If only. We know firsthand what money does to people, you know, yeah. it's, it's tough. It's, it's not good. It's ruined us. I mean, we're a shadow of our former <laughs> selves. Yeah, I mean, literally. I do still drink milk by the glass, I have to say. I know that's pretty filthy, but this is a shout out to all my milk drinkers who drink milk by the glass. I stand with you. I was going to say to you now, there's so many different options, isn't there? You know, you go into like a coffee house or even when you go around to your mate's house and you say, do you want a cup? they want to say, do you want a cup of coffee or a tea? Oh yeah, go on, I have a cup of tea. And they go, oh, I've only got almond milk. I've only got... I've only got like almond drink or I've got coconut milk. And I'm like, I can't have that in tea. And I can't drink black tea. I like to have a little bit of milk, skimmed milk. So do you, you still drink it? I do. I do drink milk. Oh, I drink. Yeah, I drink the I drink the cow's milk. Yeah. Sometimes sometimes if I if I hear a story like this or if I watch a documentary, I'll get a little bit turned off by it and won't drink drink that milk for a couple of weeks or something. But there's usually a gallon of milk that ends up back in the fridge, you know? I'd like to think, and I would hazard a guess, that probably the distilleries are probably a lot more sanitary than they were in 1858. Should we hope that's the case? No, I don't know. I, I did see some pus on the milk that's sitting in my fridge right now. There's like a nice, you know, big, <laughs> big chunk of pus there, but... <laughs> Isn't milk, when it goes off, the most fucking putrid smell disgusting. ever? It's disgusting, isn't it? And I always go... I say to someone, oh, I'm not sure. Is this, is this milk or not? <laughs> knowing, knowing it's been sitting there for three days just for their reaction to go, oh, fuck it out. Just, oh, my God. It's good. And then it stays in your nostrils for the next hour. I find that amusing. Um, okay. So three days later, a livid Leslie published an illustration that showed the politicians painting the feeble cows white with one of the distillers slipping a bag of money into Alderman Michael Tumery's pocket. Yes, he would earn the nickname Tumery as Swill Milk Tumery for his efforts to obstruct health regulations. Despite little help from local government, Leslie's continued activism led to the New York State Legislature to finally issue milk regulations in 1862. So it took like decades, decades and decades for there to be some sort of regulation to say that this was not okay and it had to change. Nevertheless, issues with milk milk adulterants persisted until rail transport and pasteurization made it viable to get cold, pure milk into the city from rural farms. So I guess as industry and, you know, better trains were, you know, and roads were built, it was easier to get, you know, you know, milk that was better for you, uh, you know, coming in from the rural uh, farms and the, they must have taken one of those thinking courses and realized that that raising cows in Manhattan is not the most, you know, sanitary agricultural yeah. environment, isn't it? Imagine that, a herd of cows just wandering down Broadway going, <laughs> oh, it's all right. Although, was it you telling me that you went to India, didn't you? And yeah, aren't did, cow, yeah. cows are celebrated as, as like animals of God there, aren't they? And they just have like cows walking around. I went on a trip to India with my father-in-law. And it's true, there are cows 
everywhere, all over the streets. But it really is kind of cool because we would see people on their morning commute stop by a little food cart, buy some, uh, you know, vegetables or whatnot, and then and then give it to give it to one of the cows. And so none of the animals that are wandering around look very hungry because it's sort of a pious act there for you to take care of the local animals. So I, I, I kind of we kind of loved the cows there, yeah. Yeah, they're ce- they're celebrated animals. That's right. So it was coming in from rural farms. Now the matter was helped further when in 1906. So we're now into the 20th century. It's taken that long. Um, Congress passed the Pure Food and Drug Act, which prevented the manufacture, sale or transportation of adulterated or misbranded or poisonous um, foods, drugs, medicines and liquor. So it only happened in 1906, which prevented the manufacture and sale of poisonous foods. Wow. So up to that point, if it's poisonous, it's fine. You decide whether you want to have it. I mean, All good. that's un- unbelievable. So today, the milk... Uh, swill milk scandals, tug of war um, between cheap manufactured foods and natural healthy variations has become more relevant than ever. Shades of it can be seen in controversies surrounding the labelling of organic and genetically modified foods, as well as in the practices of many factory farms and fast food chains. As recently as 2008, The Guardian reported a scandal in China. Oh yeah, I think this was like the Chinese milk scandal, similar kind of thing, where milk and infant formula had been cut with melamine, which sickened nearly 300,000 babies, like poison for babies, and they're selling it. It's unbelievable, and again, Jeez. it wasn't regulated. The pressure was always, how can we make milk both safe and affordable? And it seems like they could only do one of those two things, right? Well, if it's affordable, it's unsafe. Um, swill milk dairies show us that lack of transparency in how food is made has been a long lasting problem and continues today. And that was the story, mate, of the swill milk scandal of the 19th century, mate. So, I mean, it's unbelievable because as we've just talked about, there were still things happening like that as recently as 2008 and probably stuff that we've not read about and has been published even post that time as well. And we've not mentioned the massive Got Milk campaign that was, I guess, late 90s, early 2000s, right? Did you guys have a Got Milk campaign in in England? Got Milk campaign? I don't recall that. Tell me about it. That was the whole slogan. It just said Got Milk, and they would have a a celebrity, a famous face, or maybe just a model um, on, on various ads, and they'd have a nice big milk mustache. And the only text on the on the on the ad would be "Got milk," and it was to encourage people to drink milk. Was it "Got milk?" Question mark. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you're if you're having a celebrity endorsing a product that's going to make you want to buy it, you think, well, if they're endorsing it, then it's safe, mate. At the moment, over here, a loaf of bread, Warburton's bread. Is being endorsed by Samuel L. Jackson. Get out! <laughs> so he's doing a commercial. He's doing a commercial over here, and it's Samuel L. Jackson, Hollywood glitterati, and he is literally promoting a loaf of bread called Warburton's, which is from like up the north of England. What a strange product to need a, a you know a celebrity a- a advertiser like that. But he's not the only celebrity to endorse that milk. 
Robert De Niro's done it. Sylvester Stallone's done it. So now I think it's one of those cool things that was <laughs> that a Hollywood celebrity's like, what are you promoting? Oh, I'm gonna do the next Warburton's Loaf of Bread advert. And they go, yeah, nice. He's probably got paid a handsome fee for that, I would imagine. But um, yeah, I see him and I do laugh. That's hilarious. I haven't heard of Warburton. War, War, Warburton? Warburton's, yeah. I'll, I'll find the link. Warburton. And I'll send it to you. Brilliant. Uh, do you know what? Because, <laughs> because that... Um, that too good to be true crime is just so disgusting in so many facets. I haven't done any charges for it because I think it says it all. And I think it just highlights the fact of, listen, surely it's not good to sell poisonous stuff to human beings. And surely common sense would say it's not good to feed animals poison that we are then going to eat. So I think it says it all in the story, mate. So I, I haven't got any charges for that. Hey, I think that's okay. Just about everybody's guilty in there, except for our 18th century TikToker and, you know, yeah. and the artists involved. And Frank Leslie. I would say for this section of the episode, mm, th there's some pretty laughable things going on, but this is just too filthy, isn't it? Too filthy to be true crime. I like what you did there. Too filthy to be true crime. <laughs> but there, I just thought, so I was doing... Um, I found that in my research, I was doing the previous story about Fiona Bateman and this just kind of popped up and I, and I did a bit of research on it. I thought we've got to incorporate that in the pod. Although we like to incorporate, you know, humorous, ridiculous stories. I thought sometimes it's important that this story is brought to the consciousness just so something like that can never, ever happen again. The more people know about it, the better because it's unacceptable. I agree. And it's and it's relevant to today. It's relevant to today. It and is. the other part, not only the food that is relevant, but um, the other part that I, I think is a little bit relevant to today is this idea of having the artists depict what was going on in those factories. Because today we have cameras, but now we're also developing AI. And so just like there were maybe um, artistic renderings of what those factory conditions looked like, we are starting to see fabricated statements by officials or fabricated, you know, um, images, Deep images fakes. and videos now, yeah, and they're incredible. It'll be interesting to see if 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 any of this AI, if any of these deep fakes can be used for anything good, like the artists did back in the eighteen eighteen hundreds. Do you think that anything good that gets invented and any kind of new technology that gets to be used, that initially it's thought, oh, we can use this for good, but invariably it turns into something that's really negative and detrimental. Isn't money, it? money, money. I think once money gets involved, it, it, they'll use it for anything, won't they? Whoever they are. Greed, yeah. The, those deep fakes, I saw one, it was Bill Hader, the actor Bill Hader, and he was doing Tom, Tom Cruise impressions on a chat show. But the deep fake, what they've done is every time he did a Tom Cruise impression, it almost morphed into Tom Cruise's face when you're like, but that still looks like Bill Hader. But also, it's also Tom Cruise, and it it was it was frighteningly seamless the way that it morphed from him into Tom Cruise into Bill Hader, and if that gets used for you know for real real bad stuff, we we could be in some serious trouble. But maybe AI is um, a deep dive into AI is something um, we can explore on another too good to be true crime. Mm. And I want to hear if there's any more if there's any more updates about our 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 Mrs. Bateman friend over there. We could reach out to her, and get her to come on the pod. She could actually tell us a story like verbatim from her point of view. That's a brilliant idea. We can be like, I know this is probably a pain in the ass for you to deal with, and I'm sorry that your son had to walk, but you know, we we'll reward you handsomely for being a guest on our podcast, won't the, we? The thing is, if we didn't do the interview with her over Zoom, 
I'd have to go and pick her up because she can't get here because she's got no, <laughs> she's got no transport. Stop. <laughs> no, seriously, big up to Fiona. That was the Fiona Bateman story and that was also the 19th century swill milk scandal. Austin, as always, mate, it's lovely to see your beautiful face on the Zoom. We'll be doing, hopefully, some, some podcasts in the same room with each other soon. And um, that was too good to be true crime. Like, subscribe, send us a message, everybody. We love to hear from you. And we will see you all on the next episode of Too Good To Be True Crime. Austin, love you, mate. See you soon. You too, buddy. Thanks for bringing in some great stories. We'll see you soon. Too good. Too good to be true crime. Too good to be true Too fucking good to be true crime. It's all good shit.